Hello and welcome to Books by Old Dead Guys. I am Scott. And I'm David. And you are currently listening to episode number 48 of this podcast. And we are discussing together Thomas Brooks' book, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. And if you're just jumping in, you picked a great time because we've only done one podcast and we are just starting on page one. It took us a whole podcast to get to page one. Mm. But David, do you want to just real quick rehash what we learned in the last podcast? Yeah, so the last podcast we talked some about Thomas Brooks's life, uh, about how he uh, lived in a time where it was uh, looked down upon would not be a strong enough term mm-hmm. uh, to describe uh, how it was to really be persecuted uh, for being a congregationalist. Mm-hmm. We talked about some of the sufferings that, that Thomas endured uh, and so uh, that he ministered during a plague that his church burned, burned down during the, the big fire of London. Yeah. yeah. And so talked about some of that and then got into his uh, letter to the reader. And so he had some very, very pointed things to say to the reader. Uh, one to, to say, man, if you're not going to meditate on this, you're not going to gain from it. It's not about who reads most. It's about who meditates most. And then to say, Really, this is about not just growing in knowledge, but growing in doing. If you're not going to do this book, mm-hmm. if you're not going to put into practice what you learn here, mm-hmm. then just set the book down. Right. Just stop right here. Right. And so we... we uh, so we're assuming then we're assuming. That, that the reader has decided yeah. that they're not going to put the book down and that we're all going to put into practice the things that we're learning. Or the listener yeah. in this case. Yeah. Because so if, if, you, if that's not you, just, just cut just the podcast off. off. Just go on to the next podcast. And it's going to take us like... And a, by next podcast, I mean another podcast. Because yeah. we're going to be here for we're gonna a We're going to be here a long time. time. Yeah. This is not a small book. Yeah. All right. All right. So, so we're starting the introduction. So Scott, you want to go. take us away. Page one. And, and as you're reading, so again, it's like one of those pure, pro-Puritan reading tips, right? As you're beginning reading a Puritan, they almost always do what Brooks does here, which is to begin with a passage of scripture that serves as the, the reason for their writing. And his passage that he picked is 2 Corinthians 2.11. And here's what it says, lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. And here's what Brooks says. In the fifth verse, the apostle shows that the incestuous person had by his incest sadded those precious souls that God would not have sadded. Souls that walk sinfully are hazels to the godly and draw many sighs and tears from them. Jeremiah weeps in secret for Judah's sins. And Paul cannot speak of the belly gods with dry eyes. And Lot's righteous soul was burdened, vexed, and racked by the filthy Sodomites. Every sinful Sodomite was a Hazael to his eyes, a Hadad Ramon to his heart. Gracious souls used to mourn for other men's sins as well as their own. And for their souls and sins who make a mock of sin and a jest of damning their own souls. Guilt or grief is all that gracious souls get by communion with vain souls. In the sixth verse, he shows that the punishment that was inflicted upon the incestuous person was sufficient, and therefore they should not refuse to receive them who had repented and sorrowed for his former faults and follies. It is not for the honor of Christ, the credit of the gospel, nor the good of souls, for professors like these, like those blood professors to be like those bloody wretches that burnt some, that recanted at the stake, saying that they would send them into another world whilst they were in a good mind. 
speaking from personal experience, Brooks is there, in the 7th, 8th, ninth, and 10th verses, the apostle stirs up the church to forgive him, to comfort him, and to confirm their love towards him, lest he should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. Satan going about to mix the detestable darnel of desperation with the godly sorrow of a pure, penitent heart. It was a sweet saying of Jerome, let a man grieve for his sin and then joy for his grief. That sorrow for sin that keeps the soul from looking towards the mercy seat and that keeps Christ and the soul asunder or that shall render the soul unfit for the communion of saints is a sinful sorrow. In the 11th verse, he lays down another reason to work them to show pity and mercy to the penitent sinner that was mourning and groaning under his sin and misery, i.e. lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices a little for the opening of the words, lest Satan should get an advantage of us, lest Satan overreach us. The word in the Greek signifieth to have more than belongs to one. The comparison is taken from the greedy merchant that seeketh and taketh all opportunities to beguile and deceive others. Satan is that wily merchant that devour not widows' houses, but most men's souls. We are not ignorant of Satan's devices or plots or machinations or stratagems. He is but a titular Christian that hath not personal experience of Satan's stratagems, his set and composed machinations, his artificially molded methods, his plots, darts, depths, whereby he outwitted our first parents and fits us a pennyworth still as he sees reason. The main observation that I shall draw from these words is this that Satan hath his several devices to deceive, entangle, and undo the souls of men. I shall, first, prove the point. Second, show you his several devices. Third, show the remedies against his devices. Fourth, show how it comes to pass that he hath so many several devices to deceive, entangle, and undo the souls of men. And fifth, lay down some propositions concerning Satan's devices. Mm. So that's the introduction. There's the intro. Yeah, so so he's he's giving this, he's walking through the context. I appreciate this. It's a it's a it's a really common accusation of the Puritans that they take a verse out of context and then basically beat it to death to make it mean what they want it to mean. That's I've heard that many, many times. And Brooks is literally doing the opposite of that. He's yeah. setting this passage in its context. He's backing up to starting in verse 5, where the passage that he's talking about here in 2 Corinthians, you know, in 1 Corinthians, uh, we read of the man who is in 1 Corinthians 5, the man who's committed a horrible act with his mother-in-law yeah. and uh, and has been told to be, to, to the church has been told to hand him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh that his soul may be preserved in the last day. When we get to 2 Corinthians, apparently what happened is that the church did this and he was repentant. Mm. And so now Paul has given the church some instructions to receive this man back, back and to welcome in fellowship. And so Brooks is he's kind of walking through all those things. And he and he gives them the reasoning in verse 11, right? So, so we need to do this the right way so that Satan doesn't get an advantage of us. And then I love how he, he puts the accent on each of these different words in mm-hmm. the passage, right? That, that he, he helps us to see, you know, the advantage of of us. And he, he uses this picture of Satan as the wily merchant, you know, the guy snatching up everything he can. Like the, the, the modern day equivalent of the wily merchant is the, you know, the really dishonest salesman, Mm. 
you know, and it, and there are, there are different genre of salespeople that come to mind when we say this, but I'm not going to do that because I don't want to offend any of those brothers and sisters who are honest in that profession and may be listening to this podcast. But mm. there are in this world some dishonest salespeople yes. who will sell you a bill of goods that you did not want to buy. Mm-hmm. And the chief among them, according to Brooks, is Satan, mm. that that's what he does. And if you think about it, exactly what he says, that he, he outwitted our first parents, right? Mm-hmm. How did he do it? By selling them a thing that they didn't really, really want to buy. Now, I'm not, that's not an argument about the, you know, the nature of mankind. It's more yeah. of a, they didn't, they didn't think through. They were deceived. Yes. And Satan didn't reveal to them what the actual outcome of eating the fruit in the garden was going to be. Mm-hmm. Right. And as it has been from the beginning, Satan's plan hasn't changed because men are easily fooled because Satan is a really shrewd salesman. Yeah. A so great deceiver. Yes, absolutely. And then he goes on to Satan's devices, right? We're not ignorant of his plots of, of what he does. He, you know, that, that he says he is but a titular Christian that hath not personal experience of Satan's stratagems. In other words, what he's saying there is if you're not familiar with the way that the enemy is tempting you, then it may not be, it may be because you're not worth being tempted. Mm. I, 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 you mm. know, that, that's kind of what it comes down to. It's one mm. of those, you know, the modern day appropriation of this is something along the lines of if, if, if the enemy's leaving you alone, it's probably because you're not a threat. Mm. You know, that's, that's really what he's getting after. And he says, if you walk with the Lord in any amount of time, you're going to be aware of some of the ways in which the enemy tempts, but he wants to then take these and lay them out. So you've got these five. And then when you get to the end of this introduction, he's like, here's how every chapter is going to go. Yeah. I'm going to prove the point. I'm going to show you what these things are. I'm going to show you how to, what the remedies are to these things. I'm going to show you how it is that he has these things. And then we're going to come up with some conclusions and every chapter is is then going to follow the same thing, which is awesome. Because again, once you start reading Puritans, every one of them has a different pattern that they do. Owen is like this. Owen does the same thing. Mm -hmm. Um, Baxter does the same thing. Right. And so, you know, the, once you, once you see this, it makes it easier to read because you can keep in your mind, where am I? Oh, he's proving the point that this is true. Or, Mm. oh, he's, he's demonstrating what these things are. Or, you know, he's showing us here, here are the application points for this thing, you know, so it Mm. makes it easier for you to understand how the chapter is going to flow. So brother, the next part is the the proof of the point of the point. All right, here we go. We ready? Let's do it. For the proof of the point, take these few scriptures, and he's using Ephesians 6.11, put on the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. The Greek word that is here rendered wiles is a notable, emphatical word. It signifies such snares as are laid behind one, such treacheries as come upon one's back at unawares. It notes the methods or waylayings of that old subtle serpent who, like Dan's adder in the path, biteth the heels of passengers and thereby transfuseth his venom to the head and heart. The word signifies an ambushment or stratagem of war, whereby the enemy sets upon a man at unawares. It signifies such snares as are set to catch one in one's road. A man walks in his road and thinks not of it. On the sudden, he is catched by thieves or falls into a pit, etc. 
It signifies such as are purposely, artificially, and craftily sent for the taking the prey at the greatest advantage that can be. The Greek signifies properly a waylaying, circumvention, or going about, as they do which seek after their prey. Julian, by his craft, drew more from the faith than all his persecuting predecessors could do by their cruelty. So doth Satan more hurt in his sheepskin than by his roaring like a lion. Take one scripture more for the proof of the point, and that is 2 Timothy 2.26. And they might recover themselves out of the snare of the devil, who are taken captive by him at his will. The Greek word that is here rendered, recover themselves, signifies to awaken themselves. The apostle alludeth to one that is asleep or drunk, who is to be awakened and restored to his senses. And the Greek word that is here rendered, taken captive, signifies to be taken alive. The word is properly a warlike word and signifies to be taken alive as soldiers are taken alive in the war or as birds are taken alive and ensnared in the fowler's net. Satan hath snares for the wise and snares for the simple, snares for hypocrites and snares for the upright, snares for generous souls and snares for timorous souls, snares for the rich and snares for the poor, snares for the aged and snares for the youth. Happy are those souls that are not taken and held in the snares that he hath laid. Take one more proof, and then I will proceed to the opening of the point, and that is Revelation 2.24. But unto you I say, and unto the rest in Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine, and which have not known the depths of Satan, as they speak, I will put upon you no other burden, but to hold fast till I come. These poor souls, who call their opinions the depths of God, when indeed they were the depths of Satan, you call your opinion depths, and so they are, but they are such depths as Satan hath brought out of hell. They are the whispering and hissings of that serpent, not the inspirations of God. Mm. So there's the proof, right? He's given us three different texts. First is Ephesians 6, which most of us are familiar with, to put on the whole armor of God. But he, he really hammers in that motive. Why are we putting on the whole armor of God? So that we could stand against the wiles, wiles of the devil. That's a that's a lost and unfortunate word. Like I miss I mean, wiles. Wiles. It's a great word, right? Yeah. And so he he talks about this, you know, this idea that you know Satan trans he bites the heel of the passenger and then transfuses his venom to the head and heart, mm-hmm. right? Then it's an ambush, right? We're, we're yeah. blindsided, and that's the point. Yeah, you know, you don't see it coming. Yeah. So much of this, uh, you get the impression of. of falling into a trap, you know, yeah, of, of yeah. you've, you've walked right into it, you know, that all of a sudden you, you find yourself, you, you turn a corner and all of a sudden you're ambushed, yep. you know, you turn a corner and all of a sudden this thing's gotten up, come up behind you and it's got you, Yeah, you know, that. Yeah. Well, and you think about, you know, Satan prowls like a, a roaring lion looking for someone he may devour. I love how he said, basically he gets more people dressed like sheep than he does roaring like a lion. Yeah. But he still gets people roaring like a lion. You know, there's a thing about lions, mm-hmm. you know, that that uh, no cat is capable of killing its prey if it's loud mm. and boisterous and noticed. They always sneak up quietly behind whatever it is they're going to kill. And by the time you hear the roar of the lion, you're done. You're dead. Yeah. It's over. It's, yeah. yeah. You might as well hang it up. Yeah. Yeah, so then he goes, and then the second point, you know, which is exactly what you just said, David, that you think this picture of just being trapped, you know, of this ensnarement, and then signifies such as they're purposely, artificially, the the, the waylaying, 
just not being expected. Then he goes to the next scripture, 2 Timothy 2.26. They might recover themselves out of the snare of the devil, which is an encouraging thing, right? That that not only does the devil lay a trap, but being you know, falling prey to the trap of the devil does not mean that you have to be stuck there. Yes. You know, and so there's an encouragement behind this thing, you know, that there's this idea of coming to your senses, if you will. Yeah. The the warlike word he says that that he he takes us he takes us whole. Takes us captive. He takes us captive. Yeah. Captives can be set free. Yeah. And then the third one, and I'm I'm curious what your thoughts about this. He used Revelation two twenty four. What do you think he's saying here? What's what's the point of this paragraph? I think he's saying that there are some out there who, <clears throat> you know, he says these poor souls called their opinions the depths of God mm-hmm. when indeed they were the very depths of Satan. Mm-hmm. You know, I think he's saying there, there are false teachers out there that some of Satan's traps and ensnarements come out of the mouths of those who seek to, who, who, pro, who say that they are proclaiming the deep things of God. Yeah, there are some out there who, who are ambushing and and overtaking those. Some who are in sheep's clothing. Yeah, and yeah, I think there's another measure of it too. I think you're right. I think there's another measure of sometimes we've 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 put a lot of emphasis in modern culture on not giving Satan more credit than he's due. Right. Mm-hmm. I've, I've said this multiple times in, in sermons and in talking to people, you know, because we, we live in a devil baby do it sort of culture where it's easier to blame someone else. But you know what, man? Sometimes, sometimes it really is the enemy, mm-hmm. you know, and I think that's part it of it. He does work. Yeah. Yeah. He does. He is at work. And I think there's a, there's a tempering, a balancing that Brooks is trying to put on us to say also, you know, you call your opinions depths and they are. Right. Then he says they are such depths as Satan has brought out of hell. So there's a reality that the enemy is at work as well. You know, that God orchestrated everything in the life of Job to accomplish his purposes. But in the middle of that, Satan was also at work. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think about the the audience that that John in Revelation was writing to. Mm. You know, he when he said the depths, the the deep things of Satan, you know, he was he was very intentionally pulling on the these group this group of people that were saying, "Well, we've got the deep things of God. Right. We we have this this hidden knowledge that we we know the deep things. And if you were if you were one of us, then you too would know these deep things of God. Yes, which and, is awesome because you've got I so so the Church of Thyatira is the is the messenger that he's talking to here and he says, I have this against you in, in two twenty. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, which is exactly what you're saying, David, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw under a sick bed. And so you've got this picture, right? of their tolerating false teaching in the church in Thyatira. Yeah. And not just tolerating, but some of them are falling are victim falling, to yes. And yeah, so when he, when he, when John, you know, uses this phrase, there are some who have not known the depths of Satan. Satan. He, he's, he, he, he's, he's using that opportunity to do a little jab of, hey, these guys that say they're the, they know the deep things of God. They, really, they know some deep things. But they ain't of God. But they're not of God. Yeah, it's good. It's good. 
Well, there you go. All right. So we made the introduction, the proof of the point. We made it all the way in my book to page nine. Page nine, How brother. How about that? And we're, we're blazing through this. Tell you what, man. Yeah, we just might. a good 200 and... <laughs> 80-something pages to go. Oh, 90-something pages to go. And, it's, and we, as we look at it, it's worth reminding us, like, what does Brooks say the goal of reading is? Oh, to, yeah. To read and meditate. Read and meditate. And so, and again, part of why we do this is to help, you know, it, it, one of the most helpful books I ever read in my entire life, David, was a book entitled How to Read a Book. Mm. It was really helpful because I think we sometimes just assume that is, you know, that we just know how to read. And, and, and it's not knowing how to read is not simply knowing how to, how to interpret the English words on a page. Mm. It's understanding how a book is structured. It's, it's stopping and thinking about what is he saying here and how is he building his argument? That's, that's real reading, you know, that's, and, and so part of what we're trying to do is to help people be more equipped to do that sort of work because that is a dying art. Indeed. Uh, because we, we would much rather have people interpret things for us. So. Yes. Yes. All right. Well, there we are. Uh, we're, we're done with this section. We'll begin uh, the next little section the next time we gather together. Thank you guys again for listening. Would encourage you, if you would, to, uh, to like us on whatever podcast that you podcast outlet you may be engaging in and feel free to share with others who may benefit from this. Uh, thank you. We will talk again soon. Goodbye.